episode 340 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views that we're about to express do not reflect our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, or even our pets. Uh, I, we're going to interview today. We, this is a, um, a special opportunity because Michael Daniel, uh, formerly uh, the, uh, uh, I'm sure he would disavow this title, uh, cybers are, but the, the the chief cybersecurity expert on the National Security Council uh, uh, and is now president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Uh, uh, he's going to be joining us not just for an interview, but uh, for a few of the news stories as well. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate being here. No, it's a pleasure to get you on. Uh, and then also joining us for the news roundup, we're going to have Maury Schenk, uh, Steptoe's London-based lawyer and technologist. Uh, hi, Maury. Hi, Stuart. Great to be here. And Jamil Jaffer, uh, founder of the National Security Institute and uh, 600 other titles that I'm not going to cover. Jamil, it's great to have you on, too. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Okay. And Nate Jones, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with Justice and the National Security Council. Uh, did you uh, actually work with Michael Daniel or were you not overlapping? We didn't overlap on the NSC. I left toward the end of the first term, but I think Michael was already at OMB at the time. Yes, Is indeed. that right, Michael? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, in, and in that capacity, he determined whether you actually had a budget when <laughs> you exactly. went It was very ideas. important to us. <laughs> okay. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. Why don't we talk? Um, I, I've said that this is Washington's favorite indoor sport, uh, uh, and I think it is, which is when a new administration comes in, we all spend time uh, talking about who's going to get what job, uh, and that uh, those stories have begun, and we're starting to see some of the jobs filled that are going to have a major impact on cyber and cybersecurity policy in the administration. Uh, um, so, Jamil, why don't you uh, uh, lead us off and then we'll ask Nate and Michael if they want to weigh in on the likely uh, impact of the personnel that are going to be influencing policy. Yeah, well, you know, from a from a tech perspective, we've seen a lot of talk about Bruce Reed, um, the uh, Biden advisor um, on technology who's played a role in CCPA out in California, um, as well as a number of online activities aimed at protecting children. Um, he's also uh, expressed his views on Section 230, which is to say he is opposed to 230, uh, believes it should be modified, as does Pre Vice President oh, well, now President-elect uh, Biden, um, in fact, as does President Trump, uh, interestingly. And so we have this uh, very interesting confluence uh, of a lot of what we've seen recently in uh, the, the tech regulatory space, right, of, uh, of sort of the populist wing of the Republican Party coming together with the more liberal wing of the Democratic Party um, and looking to regulate tech in a variety of ways, uh, whether it's um, um, on content and, and 230 and those issues or antitrust and the like. And so uh, this is a continuing trend that you're likely to see in this new administration. Now, that being said, you know, Obviously, uh, Senator Harris comes from California. She knows the tech companies well. Um, her brother-in-law is the general counsel at Uber and, and tipped for a potential position um, in the administration. So uh, there's that side of it also. And so hard to know how this is exactly going to play out, but a lot of attention has been focused on what's going on in Congress and with uh, Bruce Reed likely taking on a significant tech role um, in the administration going forward. 
Well, what I think is significant about Reed is he had, he obviously could have done anything and he wanted to do cyber. uh, And he's managed to have a private sector life in technology without really depending much on Silicon Valley funding, which has freed him to be much more skeptical about the value of technology and about the motives of the technology companies. And that showed up in, in his discussion of Section 230, where uh, he had some pretty scathing things to say about uh, how the uh, 230 immunity was enabling what he considered irresponsible beha- behavior on the part of the platforms. Yeah, look, I mean, I think this is a challenge. I mean, I think the tech community um, faces a, a real crossroads at some level. Um, uh, they, for a long time, they've spent a lot of time working very closely with the ACLU, EFF, and a lot of those groups, in part because that's where I think technology executives um, you know, personal political views are. Um, and the challenge they face now is that these same groups are now teeing up against them on issues like 230, on issues like antitrust and the like. Uh, and this is true of a larger sort of uh, base of folks in the in the sort of more liberal part of the tech community, um, including, by the way, within their own companies, right? You see a lot of it. You see the protests against Google's involvement with DOD. Um, you've seen the protests about uh, GitHub's involvement with ICE. Um, and so, you know, there, there is sort of this, this movement going on, but the challenge for the tech companies is a lot of these positions and, and to cut against their own business interests. And what they haven't done, spent a lot of time doing is cultivating the sort of classic or moderate Republican, the conservative sort of economic conservative Republicans who aren't represented by the, the more populous part of the, of the, of the, of the, of the uh, Republican Party, the sort of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. And I think now you're seeing that, that sort of chicken come home to roost. You see it on Capitol Hill in these hearings, whether it's the Google, the Facebook hearings, the antitrust stuff, 230, you know, um, or or what you're likely to see coming out of a new administration. So I think you're exactly right. You've identified the problem, right, Stuart? But I think it goes to a larger issue in the Silicon Valley. And if they're going to combat it effectively, uh, they've got to think about how to find um, Republicans and moderate Democrats they can support and get out ahead of that. I think right now they're behind the eight ball. So uh, let me ask Nate, do you think that uh, Bruce Reed's views on Section 230 have have appeal across the aisle uh, or is he going to be faced with a lot of resistance, not just in the administration, but uh, uh, from Republicans if he tries to uh, uh, tweak uh, 230 in the direction he wants to go? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'll you'll continue to hear both sides um, express concerns about uh, 230. But I think, as we've discussed before, I think, you know, Democrats and Republicans tend to diverge when you start talking about specific uh, approaches to reforming 230 and and have very different ideas in mind in, ter- in terms of what policies they're trying to advance there. And you could you know, probably so get think, everybody. Couldn't you get everybody to agree uh, from the people who, who uh, want to change it that changing it for child sexual abuse material is uh, worth doing? Uh, obviously, Republicans are going to be on board with that and a lot of Democrats as well. And certainly that sounds like one of Reed's concerns. Yeah. And I think I think there is some, you know, what I would call sort of low hanging fruit areas where you can get substantive agreement. The million dollar question is whether you can get political agreement. You know, will the Josh Hawley's of the world um, 
be comfortable letting that through. I mean, I think as you've seen in other areas where, you know, when Congress steps in and tries to reform a statute that isn't touched very often, there, you know, it, people tend to view it as sort of like a once in a decade or once in a two decade opportunity to make some significant changes to it and, and assume that it's not going to come along again for quite a while. And so, you know, you could see people holding it up to try to advance their own policy views, you know, and I think a lot will depend on what happens with the Georgia runoff in January. Um, if the Democrats take the Senate, you may see the Biden administration a bit more emboldened to, to take on these issues. If they don't, um, you know, I think the focus will be probably exclusively on that kind of low hanging fruit and trying to to reach across the aisle and and find areas of common ground and trying to, to advance it, things there. Uh, sure. Look, it, it does look as though the, the Republicans have a decent chance of winning at least one and probably two of those seats, but it'll be close. Uh, uh, let me ask um, Michael, you worked with Bruce Reed. He was uh, Biden's chief of staff for a period while you were in the government. Uh, um, he's going to have to face up to a whole bunch of cybersecurity issues uh, uh, as well. That can't can't be ignored. Uh, what uh, what sorts of cybersecurity challenges do you think he's likely to face? And uh, is he likely to think that part of the solution is more regulation? Well, I think one of the key challenges he's likely to face is rebuilding the cyber coordination machinery. Um, because what is actually atrophied under the Trump administration has been that central coordinating function uh, through the NSC and through the interagency process. And so you've actually seen a lot of the agencies like CISA and NSA actually get quite a bit stronger. Um, but we're going to have to rebuild that coordination function. I think the other. Well, I, I, I have said about the Trump administration that if you have a pretty good claim to jurisdiction over a problem, um, not having an interagency process is actually a benefit. You just get to do what you want and nobody's going to stop you. True. But I think that you can see some of the fraying at the edges of when the agencies haven't coordinated well and the, some of the challenges that can lead to like, you know, OFAC suddenly deciding Treasury suddenly deciding to issue guidance about ransomware payments and catching all the other agencies completely off guard. So, um, yes. you know, uh, but I also think internationally, um, we're going to have to do a lot of work to repair some of the coordination with our, you know, allies uh, on cybersecurity issues. Um, so I think that, you know, that's going to be a big, a big area of focus. I think the real question when you talk about regulations, Stuart, in the in the cybersecurity area, right, is are we going to reach a point where there are some entities in the system that we decide play such key roles with cybersecurity ramifications that we're going to impose some requirements on them. And I think, you know, a good example is actually like the cloud service providers, right? You saw the AWS outage last week that had such a monumental impact on a lot of organizations functioning. And they've now become essentially like a utility service for a good sized chunk of the economy. So are you confessing that when you uh, uh, wrote the uh, um, executive order that uh, 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 described what are now called Section 9 entities, which is the critical infrastructure entities, that uh, excluding uh, uh, IT companies from that was a bad idea? 
I think it was a bridge too far at the time, um, but I certainly think that I would include them in anything you know like that list now. And I think it'd be very hard, especially now, eight years, you know, almost eight years on from that, to make an argument not to include them. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, uh, last question then: If you're giving Bruce Reed advice, he's obviously got a great relationship with the president, uh, uh, but you know he was succeeded. Uh, as chief of staff by the guy who holds the chief of staff job now. That's never a completely comfortable relationship. What what should he do? What turf should he carve out? What role does he want uh, uh, that will give him um, influence over policy eight months from now when uh, uh, people are starting to revert to the traditional roles of each of the offices? Yeah, I think that's a, you know, I mean, for one thing, one of the big differences, I think, between the Obama administration and the Biden administration will be that, you know, Obama actually really personally loved tech, right? He loved new technology. He loved um, sort of that whole uh, side of the economy. That is just not naturally where Biden is, right? He recognizes that it's important. He's going to, you know, appoint good people, but he's not going to come at it with the same zeal that uh, President Obama um, did. And so I think that, you know, carving out a role is about making sure that these issues stay, you know, under a steady hand and don't cause, you know, more problems than, uh, you know, that any of the solutions don't cause more problems than the problems they're trying to fix. Right. Um, so <laughs> so he, he, he needs to bring the president some wins because if he yes. comes in uh, with disasters every time, uh, he's going to slowly lose his place on the agenda. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, uh, OK, yeah. Um, Jamil, Europe is has suddenly discovered the, uh, the well, I we have spent 25 years trying to persuade the Europeans that they should not break up the internet and insist on data localization with respect to personal information. And I don't think we have uh, uh, closed that deal. They think that has been a great success for them. And they now seem to be saying, and why don't we apply the same basic idea to uh, all kinds of other electronic data, trade secrets or industrial information. It all has to stay in Europe or be governed by European laws. And we need to be able to ensure that nobody will cooperate with US intelligence services when they take that data outside the United States. Uh, That's about as much of their plan as I understood. Do you understand it better? No, I mean, I think you're exactly right. Sort of, you think you've laid out the problem with Europe and its and its data, its combination of data privacy, data localization uh, laws, um, and it's sort of, it's almost, you know, failure to to grapple with the fact that we are in a globalized economy um, and that nobody, not everybody's going to comply with their with their approach to the world, and yet trying to impose their their position on on uh, other uh, uh, you know other nations, um, you find this problem actually happening not just with the U.S. and GDPR and the privacy uh, shield. That's the, the issue that's being uh, discussed now. It's been the subject of, of you know multiple cases before the European Court of Justice, but you also see it playing out within Europe. Also, as you see individual nations on the front lines, sort of saying, "Well, we've got national security interests also." Um, and in particular, we saw some recent reporting uh, over the weekend now of of this uh, recognition that. There is a need to uh, to bring data together inside of Europe and allow Europe, some European companies or 
researchers or the like to use that data. They're they're worried that they're going to go to you know uh, companies in Asia where they're, where there's less regulation on it and use that data. Um, and and so you know Europe is 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 caught in a pretty tough bind trying to impose views that actually don't make sense in a technologically dependent world on not only their own people but on other countries. Um, and 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 now they've got courts that are involved in it trying to interpret both the laws but also potentially the European uh, the European Constitution or the, sort of the European core documents. You add on to all of this that the U.S. instead of rejecting this poor form of regulation um, and these these poorly thought out ideas, actually decided in a variety of states, including California, with CCPA, uh, one of whom you know Bruce Reed being the architect of in part of that, um, to adopt very similar laws and very similar procedures. And so you would think that you know California of all places, being savvy to the cybersecurity issues that GDPR raised, being savvy to the to the to the issues that the, the challenges it presents for a modern economy. Um, to just come in and sort of do CCPA the way they've done it with all of these sort of, you know, unfinished business about what it actually means. And then to suggest we should do that at the national level. I mean, it's 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 uh, it strikes me as, as sort of, you know, um, falling a not uh, a cart falling and not a very smart horse. Well, it's it may be a bad idea whose time has come. Uh, Maury, I, have you spent time with this idea uh, and how do you see it playing out? Well, you know, I'm in what used to be Europe here in London, and um, <laughs> I, I have a slightly more benign perspective. I think Europe has really messed this up, but they, they have a, more of a plan. I don't think they're shutting off. The latest proposals aren't to shut off flows of non-personal data. Um, they're to enable intergovernmental flows within Europe. Um, it does have one big new area of regulation, which is data intermediaries. So there's this sort of academic concept in Europe that the way to solve the problem is to have intermediaries for personal data who will help us share it when we want to. And now they've established a regulatory framework for that, uh, for those data intermediaries. And I think this is just academics and bureaucrats who are lost because this doesn't work uh, in the real uh, world. So this is I've seen this in the past where uh, they, they understand an area and if they see an opportunity for third parties or trusted parties to do something, they say, and we will help those parties become trusted by creating a regulatory regime for them. This is before there's actually a clear economic case for those intermediaries, but because they want it to happen, they think that regulating them will uh, make for uh, a, a commercial success. We saw this in uh, uh, certificate authorities uh, when we were first uh, developing PKI infrastructures, uh, uh, that that was the enthusiastic response of the uh, European Union. Never did work. But if that's what they have in mind, yeah, this, this sounds like it'll be a long regulatory process in which a few interested parties will participate, but it's quite possible that it will never become commercially relevant. Yeah, I, could, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, as you started, it, it's very similar to what happened with certificate authorities. And um, you know, Ursula van der Leyen recognized earlier this year when she released the data strategy that it's too late for Europe to be the big player in the platforms. But they want to figure out what to do, but they've got no idea how to do it. I, it one sees, yeah. uh, I think Brexit's pretty bad for the UK in many ways, but at least we're out of this kind of crazy regulation. 
Okay, um, so uh, let's go from that to divorce, uh, Russian oligarch divorces, because uh, never let it be said that we aren't willing to stoop to the gutter to uh, uh, to explain the law of uh, uh, cyberspace. Uh, uh, Tatiana Akhmadova uh, has gotten an order uh, uh, telling Google to cough up her former husband's uh, Gmail. Um, and this was always an odd um, problem. Google would would never respond to civil discovery rules, uh, uh, disclosure requirements. They said, uh, we're bound by uh, the uh, U.S. law, which says we cannot share in the absence of a government subpoena. Uh, so I am a little puzzled, and maybe, Maury, you understand this, how Tatiana got this order and how it fits into Google's usual position on producing Gmail in response to civil discovery orders. Well, um, Google took the same position under the Stored Communications Act. It was her son's. Um, the allegation is that her ex-husband has secreted assets with her son, and it's her son's Gmail. It was established that it was his account, and so uh, it appears to be have to be determined that that is something that is legitimately discoverable in this proceeding. So it's it's basically a court order in aid of civil discovery that doesn't general that doesn't generally open the gates to Google having to re- disclose emails. So here's my guess. Uh, the the subpoena says that after opposing this, the son has withdrawn his opposition to the subpoena. And so the uh, magistrate judge may have, although she doesn't say it, uh, decided, okay, that constitutes consent to the disclosure. And of course, Google will disclose things with consent. This has always been the way uh, civil discovery of Gmail has worked in the past. You get the other party, the party whose uh, Gmail you want, in front of the judge, and the judge says, uh, "You've got a choice. You can go. You can be in contempt, or you can consent." Uh, and they consent, and then Google says, "Oh, consent. Oh, yeah, sure, no problem." Uh, so maybe that uh, it looks to me as though the judge, the magistrate judge, skipped a couple of steps in the course of getting there, but that may be how. Uh, she got there. Well, we'll, that, we'll find out more, I'm sure. That is what happened, I think, from the reporting I've seen. So you, I, I think you understand this process better than I do, but I think you've got it just right. Okay. All right. It's time for China, China, China. Uh, in the, uh, you know, it won't be long before we can't uh, make fun of uh, President Trump. So I want to take that opportunity. Uh, uh, there is, uh, you know, uh, it's just amazing. The Trump administration, they're going to be putting out new ways to decouple us from China in the tech sector on Jan- the morning of January 20, I, I predict. Uh, uh, and they have now at least two new initiatives going. One of them is a little vague and in response to current events. And that's the idea of building a sort of uh, alliance of states that are not going to let China use its economic might to push them around. Uh, Jamil, what does that initiative amount to? 
Yeah, well, you know, uh, part of what's going on here is you've seen the Secretary of State get out there talking about the Secure Networks Initiative, um, sort of the clean Internet. Uh, but part of this idea is that we've got to work together as, as a sort of a Western alliance uh, to confront the Chinese threat. In particular, you've seen Australia be particularly forward leaning uh, when it comes to uh, going up against China and pushing back on uh, China and a range of areas, whether it's on telecommunications gear um, or on uh, issues related to COVID or the like. Uh, you've seen a fairly aggressive Australian push, in part emboldened by the U.S. sort of giving them a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a, of a you know, sort of a push to do it. Uh, the U.S. is now trying to assemble a larger coalition of nations to, to, alongside Australia and the United States. Uh, the United Kingdom has, silently, has sort of finally come around um, after a law, after many years of pushing back on uh, in the telecoms area against U.S. Uh, interests uh, to to limit the access of certain telecommunications provider providers in China to the U.S. Uh, and, and Western markets. Uh, the U.K. has come on board. And so uh, this is part of that larger effort that, that uh, you know, Secretary Pompeo has been pushing for a while. I mean, it takes advantage of, of various aspects of the U.S. government, including uh, its Commerce Department authorities that it's been using quite effectively, um, some of its Treasury Department authorities. Um, but in, in a lot of ways, a uh, state is trying to coordinate this this sort of coalition of, of, of the willing uh, to push back on China. And I think you're exactly right, Stuart, that we will see uh, more action from the Trump administration um, as they as they continue to leave the building um, here on uh, in December and January and continue to push back on China. And the part, I think, in response to a perception that the Biden administration is likely to be softer in some ways um, on China, although I think it's going to be hard for the uh, the Biden administration to do that, um, given what they've said on labor issues and the like, and in particular, on the very real threat that China does pose to our economy. Oh, I, th- I think that the, the, the part of the Trump strategy here is to present an enormous menu. I won't describe it as a uh, Chinese restaurant menu, but an enormous menu of things that it has done and allow the Biden administration to pick a couple and say, yeah, we're not going to do that. And then take credit for being more moderate with uh, and, and all they have to do is pick ones that are not going to work out anyway. And, and I'm sure there are some of them that, that fall into that category. So yeah, that that strikes me as the most likely that uh, uh, the Biden administration has plenty of things to choose from here. Uh, and the Trump administration wouldn't have been able to do them all uh, as well. In fact, Maury, there's a, a, a list of Chinese firms with military ties that the government is proposing to uh, impose sanctions on that is uh, – a relatively new or at least expanded uh, approach to this uh, military tie list. Yeah. So earlier this year, um, the Trump administration added a new section to the export administration regulations that said, if you send a bunch of listed stuff to military end users in Russia, China, or Venezuela, then you need a license. Uh, This is a list of 89 Chinese companies that are definitely meet the definition of military end user. It doesn't really change the previous rule, but it says rather than figuring out whether it's a military end user, these definitely are. So it's a it's a small jab in the face for China. Okay, so it and and, and actually it's some welcome clarity for people who sell products to China because now they have a pretty good idea uh, whether they are in trouble for selling to uh, uh, firms that that might use them for the military. Okay, yeah. so. And, and if it's a, it's a fair point, if it's somebody who's not on the list, you can't companies can't assume that it's not restricted, but it, it provides a bit more cover, I would say. 
So not to be outdone by Europe or California, China's got its own new uh, data protection law. Uh, it's not yet in effect, but it's been published and uh, uh, it's moving slowly, maybe inexorably forward. To, and it raises the question of what is the status of privacy in China. Uh, and I think a lot of people have some pretty simple views about how that, uh, how, how privacy is viewed in China. And I thought I'd ask you, because you spent some time there, uh, where you think Chinese privacy law and kind of social movement is going. Well, the balance here is very different. I mean, face recognition is huge in China and face recognition is becoming a big issue here. People are worried about it, um, but it's only protection from private actors. So China has proposed a personal information protection law. And like the example, example Jamil was giving about some U.S. states, China's following a somewhat GDPR-like model and may have some pretty good privacy protections for individuals from companies, but it doesn't protect people from state surveillance. And uh, Things do tend to be honored in the breach in China, depending upon how you who you know. So I think there could be a fairly significant set of private privacy protections on the books in China before too long. But it's not going to suddenly become not a surveillance state. So it's it's a little like bribery law in China. When you see that somebody important has been arrested on bribery charges and maybe it'll be privacy charges in the future. Your first thought is that, wow, what did they do? That it's it's instead, wow, which important person did they piss off? Uh, and uh, uh, the likelihood of the, this just means that there are now tools for imposing pretty dramatic penalties on big internet companies in China, uh, and uh, then they have to be much more careful about not pissing people off in Beijing. Yeah, I mean, we just saw Alipay's IPO. I think maybe the sec first or second biggest IPO ever was canceled because Jack Ma uh, pissed off authorities in Beijing. And, you know, I, I think they the, the central authorities are looking for additional tools to take actions like that. Okay. Um, from uh, uh, China on privacy to uh, the Atlantic relationship in privacy, uh, we just got an announcement that the Privacy Shield negotiations are going to start up. Uh, they're going to have to spend six months thinking of a new name since they've already used two. Um, uh, Maury, uh, uh, what's your sense about prospects for Privacy Shield negotiations? I don't know how Schrems 2, the decision that invalidated the Privacy Shield, leaves room for much more to happen. Because Schrems 2 kind of says uh, U.S. surveillance law doesn't meet European standards. I don't know what the U.S. is going to be able to concede in a new deal that satisfies the European Court of Justice, but maybe they can try again and then, right. and then we'll have a Schrems 3 case. So you could you could get rid of the adequacy requirement uh, that, that the court hung its hat on. Uh, you could do do a binding international agreement as opposed to just the something in which we say, if you do that, uh, we'll find you adequate. Uh, um, and then argue to the court that uh, the later uh, international agreement modifies the uh, European uh, uh, covenant of rights, which would be a hard sell. 
But uh, at some point, somebody's going to have to say to the court of justice, "Yeah, you you just screwed up here. You 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 caused enormous economic disruption. If if we if we trust what you're uh, saying and apply it, it will cause disruption that could be very harmful to Europe. You got to reconsider it, and that's a way of getting them to reconsider it. But I agree with you. Apart from a very ballsy move by the European uh, negotiators, it's going to be tough to find a way to solve this problem. Well, you've just sent the message to the ECJ, Stuart, so hopefully they'll listen. <laughs> I'm sure they listen every week with, to see whether I'm going to say something mean about them or not. Uh, um, okay, uh, Jamil, I, the one thing that we can predict about 2021 that we uh, is that it's going to cost more to, to to buy cybersecurity. Uh, uh, there was just a Deloitte study that said uh, um, cyber costs are going to be a billion dollars for big banks. Uh, it, what can we say about that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think we've known uh, that the trend has been on the rise. You saw the Jamie Dimon letter from just about a year ago uh, describing how much money that uh, JP Morgan was spending on uh, cybersecurity internally and the expected increase in growth. Uh, in costs. And um, if you look at the amount of uh, crime, particularly in the post-COVID environment, targeting financial institutions, I think it demonstrates that this continues to be a, a, a you know, viable target or an important target uh, for those who would come after both nation states like North Korea, who are spending a lot of time um, uh, trying to get money out of the out of the uh, American and Western financial system, uh, as well as uh, non-state actors, criminal groups and the like, um, who are targeting both large financial institutions, but also the new, newer fintech companies who uh, may or may not have necessarily the same level of capabilities that the larger uh, banks have. And then the thing to think about is it's also a it's also a um, an ecosystem thing because it's not just the large banks. The large banks, fairly well protected, fairly well defended. It's a lot of these smaller banks uh, that have um, and international banks that have less capacity um, that are facing challenges. And so you see efforts like the FSR um, and, and the work the FSISEC has been doing to really try and harden the financial system overall. Uh, to share information and the like. Um, but look, uh, I think it's it's likely that costs will continue to rise um, in the marketplace because uh, the threat continues to remain high. Yeah, I'm always reminded because it was such a remarkable insight when I first heard it uh, of a statement by uh, one of the PayPal execs who said, oh, we had 20 competitors and we didn't have to worry about putting them out of business at all. We just had to protect ourselves from uh, the cyber thieves who were trying to put us out of business. And as long as we did that, the cyber thieves took care of our competitors. Uh, and uh, uh, that that may well be true for banks increasingly, that uh, you can't survive unless you got a billion-dollar cybersecurity business uh, uh, budget. Uh, um, and uh, uh, it, will, it will produce a uh, consolidation of U.S. banking. Certainly a possibility. All right. Uh, Nate, uh, this got a lot of votes when I uh, uh, tweeted it and asked people if they thought we should cover it. So I'm going to cover it uh, or I'm going to ask you to cover it. Uh, uh, Amazon is getting privacy backlash for its sidewalk feature. Uh uh, and and in not simply that it is it used the name Sidewalk after everybody on the planet had already called uh, some other product Sidewalk. Uh, uh, what is the problem with Sidewalk or Amazon Sidewalk? So uh, yeah, Amazon offers a number of of smart home devices from Ring security and doorbell cameras uh, 
to um, to outdoor lights and things like that, that often operate sort of at the periphery or even sometimes outside of your home Wi-Fi network. And what this feature does is allows you to to um, band together with your neighbors and and take advantage of excess Wi-Fi bandwidth that each other has, and and will boost the quality of these things. And that's where Amazon has focused much of its communications efforts in in singing the praises of this feature. Um, but, you know, obviously in a world where you are only as strong as your weakest link, adding more leaks, more links to, to these, uh, devices and, and networks that are potentially not as strong as, as you would like, uh, makes, exposes you to some, some additional, uh, leakage of, of your personal data. Now, Amazon tried to get out in front of this and, and talked about all of the things it's done to counter that, um, including deployment of, of, uh, encryption for everything that travels over these networks. No, um, cry me a river. But, that, that's useless. The, and, and exactly. And, and a lot of these companies, you know, despite their best efforts, have, have proven that uh, nothing's perfect. And, and there, are, there are aspects of this that fall outside of Amazon's control at the end of the day. Um, and, and there's a question about whether it's, it's a very smart thing for you to, to avail yourself of. And of course, Amazon has it on by default, uh, you know, to their credit, I guess they did offer an opt out, but when, when, uh, companies turn things like this on by default and require you to opt out, it always makes me wonder, um, whether it's a feature you should actually use. Yeah, I, I I predict everybody will let it go because they probably get something out of it, and it's a, it's just a mesh network. I'm not worried much about the privacy stuff, but I am worried about the security of these things. Yeah. It's just one more security hole. Uh, Amazon's a is pretty good about managing security. I'd rather have them managing my security than having me manage my security, but they're not doing that. They're just managing <laughs> a, a low piece bar, of Stuart. my security. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and you don't know how your neighbor's oh. handling that. So, uh, exactly. All right. Uh, so, um, uh, the TikTok deal is going to come to a head next week and maybe always will come to a head next week. Uh, uh, Maury, uh, um, there's not a lot of news here, except that uh, the deadline's extended by one week, right? Yeah, it's extended to this Friday. I mean, it's pretty clear TikTok's trying to run out the clock of the Trump administration. Um, I'd say stay tuned to this podcast to see if they can do it. I think that's right. And what they may be thinking, and frankly, they're, they're stalling on this has made me think about it too. Plus the fact that the Chinese government doesn't, uh, isn't going to agree to anything that the Trump administration would accept. Uh, it raises the question when the Trump administration or when any U.S. government says, no, that deal is vetoed, it's going to have to be unwound. You kind of say, well, you and Whose army? Uh, who's going to do it exactly? Now, I guess the Justice Department takes them to court and says, we want an order breaking them up. Uh, and uh, at that point, if they don't break up, they uh, uh, they can be seized and sold for parts. Uh, but it's actually uh, hard to enforce. And we've never had to stare deep into that particular pit. I think we will get to do it several times in the in the Biden administration as Chinese companies and the Chinese government decide, you know, we're just going to call their bluff. Uh, so, but this could be the first one. Well, for TikTok, the real threat was to take the app off the app stores. And since that didn't happen, 
uh, I agree with you there. The next weapon is much less clear. Okay. Um, the FCC gave up on 230 regulation, although Bruce Reed could probably bring it back, uh, and decided instead they were going to look at uh, a Chinese 5G uh, infrastructure. And it appears, you know, the, the, unlike the FTC, the FCC is going to lose its chairman and get a uh, uh, Democrat uh, almost immediately after January 20. Uh, so uh, uh, Ajit Pai had, had to say, okay, what parts of my legacy am I trying to save from this uh, uh, house fire? Uh, and he decided it was doing Chinese infrastructure players. Um, ZTE had, had been kicked out uh, by the FCC and asked for rehearing. Jamil, how'd that go? It did not go well for ZTE. It was uh, um, a 10-page order um, that's a, a complete loss for ZTE. Um, uh, the commission basically, and this, by the way, was was issued by the chief of the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau, so it's not from the commission itself, but from one of the one of the staff uh, lead staff members. Um, but ultimately, what they determined was that ZTE had really presented no new basis uh, for uh, reconsidering their prior order, um, including the, the the claims by ZTE that the Secure Network Act um, uh, would limit what what uh, the FCC could do. The FCC did not read it that way. Um, it had considered, it said it had considered all these arguments previously made. Um, and ultimately, you know, ZT says, you know, we're not a national security threat. And, uh, and, 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 and the SEC just points right back to all the, the huge amount of evidence that it had pulled together in its initial, in its final designation order, I should say, um, uh, regarding why it viewed uh, ZT as a national security threat. Now, again, these are hotly debated issues. I don't mean to suggest they're not. Um, but at least in this, uh, you know, version of, of the fight on a motion for reconsideration or request for reconsideration uh, in 10 pages, uh, the FCC didn't just say no, it said heck no. Yeah. Uh, so asking for that is was just saying, yeah, please, sir, may I have another and getting whacked up the other side of the face. Uh, I, so he, I love this story. I don't know quite what I love about it, but Google has uh, announced it has it plans to um, put a fiber optic network from Saudi Arabia to Israel. Uh, and uh, uh, Jamil, I, I, I guess I do have a, a one question. Who's going to be doing more espionage on that uh, particular uh, link? Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, Israel, or Google? Well, it's, uh, I mean, look, it depends on it depends on what you mean by espionage. But obviously, uh, Google has its own data collection capabilities uh, from its, its variety of sources. So you know, I think they've got they've got their own plan for looking at their at their users' data and the like. Um, but you know, when it comes to uh, this connection, right? What's happening here is the reason they're looking at going through Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Israel, and a number of other countries is uh, the current toll to go through Egypt, uh, which is the primary route from Asia into Europe, um, is very high. The Egyptian government spent as 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 charged a lot of money uh, for, and and frankly, the, the pipes are are not as big as they need to be, and so. Uh, this new uh, pipeline called Blue Raman um, uh, by the uh, by by the Google team um, is uh, is is anticipating going through Saudi Arabia. It doesn't have final regulatory approval from Saudi Arabia or a number of the other countries, uh, but at least the Jordan the Jordanians and Israelis look like they want to go through. And on your question about surveillance, um, you know, uh, let's be candid. Israel does do um, do, first of all, Israel's probably one of the top states in the region, if not the globe, um, in terms of conducting surveillance um, on networks um, in the top rank, um, along with us, the Chinese, the Russians, and the like. Um, and, uh, you know, they also implement a lot of the surveillance, or at least Israeli private companies implement all the surveillance for some of these other 
Arab states as sort of a, a not well-known fact. And so um, I'll leave it to, to the listeners to figure out who's going to be most likely to uh, benefit from a, a, a fat pipe of internet traffic going through. By the way, it is worth noting that a lot more traffic today is encrypted than it has ever been. Uh, yes, these it'll be hard to do. That's to, right. But this is right. this this I think will be the first time that a uh, an international link has gone through Israel for obvious reasons, uh, and so it is their first opportunity to kind of say, "Gee, how do how do spies deal with all this data? Some of which they'd really like to get at coming through encrypted." Uh, um, and uh, they got a lot of smart people. They they'll be working on that. Uh, so it should be. We'll all get, we're all going to learn something. Uh, from that experience. Uh, uh, unlike the French, who just cannot imagine that um, taxing the tech sector won't help the tech sector in France. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, uh, it looks as though they've basically chosen the interim period uh, between uh, uh, the Trump administration losing and the Biden administration stepping in uh, to say, you know, that tax that we've been talking about on American tech companies, yeah, this is the time when it has to be paid. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2019, France enacted a law that imposed, a, a, I think it was a 3% tax on certain digital services and other activities of technology companies. Uh, they, they decided to hold off on enforcing that and collecting the taxes, uh, provided that the U.S. agreed to negotiate under the auspices of the OECD some kind of global arrangement on how to deal with, with this issue globally. And the Trump administration during those discussions has not entirely surprisingly refused to agree to any of the proposals that have been brought forward. Um, and that's not to say that any of those proposals were, were ideal. Um, but I think the big problem is earlier this year, they took their ball and went home and walked away from the table. Uh, so it's not entirely surprising that France is now um, threatening to, to start collecting those taxes again. Um, the timing to me is a little bit surprising. Um, you know, I know the end of the, the calendar year is coming and they may want the 400 plus million dollars worth of tax revenue. Um, and particularly given where their economy is at during COVID, but it, it risks, you know, um, one of these, you know, uh, midnight actions by the Trump administration to impose a bunch of tariffs on them in retaliation for it. Well, that's, you're, so, you're right. That, that, that could happen. Although I wonder, you know, uh, um, I think attention span is in short supply in the White House right now. Uh, yeah. and, uh, it, and it was never exactly a, an abundant resource. Uh, and so the it's quite possible of the year. <laughs> they, they, they could easily um, slip in where the Trump administration says, we're going to have to leave this one for the new guys. And the new guys say, uh, when people come to complain and say, well, you know, the Trump administration really screwed you. Uh, uh, you know, that, that, that situation is so bad. We don't see how we can fix it. Uh, so it is possible that, that the Trump, the Biden administration just says, yeah, it's not our job to fix that. Uh, and uh, uh, the tech companies that are paying the taxes just have to pay. Yeah. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration is willing to come back to the table on this issue. You know, in France's defense, you know, you can accuse them of protectionism here. But, you know, I think from their perspective, these companies aren't paying taxes at home. They're not paying taxes abroad. 
And, you know, I think you could argue that they're trying to create more of a level playing field for European competitors who are subject to some of these same taxes or, or at least different taxes that are of equal um, amount. And so, um, you know, I think it would be it'll be interesting to see if the Biden administration is willing to to go back to the table and find some some areas of common ground to to avert you know, this kind of unilateral enforcement and instead create some kind of international framework. Maybe. But I, th- I also think this is a this is an opportunity for the crazy left and the Democratic Party, which is about half of it, uh, to uh, uh, to say, no, the problem is they're not paying enough taxes anywhere. And instead of bailing them out, we ought to be taxing them more here. Uh, and uh, I could see that becoming a pretty noisy view uh, and one that the Biden administration has to pay attention to. All right. Last idea and an idea that I I have to say I – I I, I lack enthusiasm for, but maybe I don't understand it. a company, Revada, has has said to the Defense Department, "You've got all this great mobile uh, spectrum. Why don't you let us have it, and then we'll lease it to people, and you'll get paid for it. And we promise to keep as much as you need." Is is that the basic offer by this company? Uh, yeah, Stuart, I think it is. I mean, I, I like the story just because it's such a, a wacky story. Revada, Irish-owned company, hired Carl Rove to lobby the White House to convince the Defense Department to free up their spectrum. Apparently, the Pentagon doesn't like the idea. I think this idea is dead on arrival, um, but they probably didn't bank on the fact of uh, Trump losing the election. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you know, and... and- uh, there are plenty of Irish politicians who would say that that they have a crony capitalism problem in Ireland. Uh, so you can imagine these guys coming to the United States and say, "Yeah, look, let me show you how it's done." Uh, so maybe that was the, the the source of this. But I, I, it's not crazy because the Defense Department is not getting a- anywhere near the. The money it could out of uh, unused spectrum. They don't want to give it up because they need it uh, in a crisis. They may need it for additional equipment. But uh, if they could find a way to monetize it uh, on a standby basis, it would uh, it would be helpful. But uh, I, I'm guessing DOD would rather not go there because they figured that they would then get outmaneuvered by whoever had the spectrum and they'd slowly find that they had lost more than they gained uh, and that uh, all the money had ended up in Ravada's hands. Yeah. I mean, this this spectrum's worth tens of billions. Why would they do it this way? The FCC could auction it somehow and figure out a sharing mechanism rather than give a huge windfall to Ravada. Fair enough. That's right. Uh, and the you know then the administration could break up uh, uh, TikTok instead of having uh, friends of the White House buy it. Uh, so uh, maybe there's a theme there. All right. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, I now want to talk to uh, to Michael Daniel. Uh, Michael, you were. I know you hate this uh, this term, but you were what everybody wanted to call the cyber czar uh, in the Obama administration. You left that office to join and I think more or less create the Cyber Threat Alliance. So uh, what is the Cyber Threat Alliance and why did you go there? Sure. So really, the Cyber Threat Alliance is a way for the cybersecurity industry, the cybersecurity providers to share threat intelligence with each other. Uh, in both an automated fashion and a human-to-human fashion. 
And part of the reason I, I wanted to uh, really build up the CTA is it's something that we've been talking about needing for a really long time. Um, it's got an interesting mission and an interesting challenge. Um, and also just trying to figure out how to start a company from the ground up, um, you know, a nonprofit was uh, was a really interesting challenge. So you and Bruce Reed, that, that's the, 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 you both took similar uh, uh, career paths. You went out to California to start 501c3s and you stayed here. Yeah, I stayed here in the D.C. area, although, you know, CTA now has... Um, 28 member companies from headquartered in, um, you know, eight different countries around the world. Um, my staff is, um, you know, scattered uh, in multiple different locations. So actually, in many ways, you know, the shift in 2020 to remote work, we'd already done. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're pretty globally distributed. So uh, you you have uh, companies from many com- countries. Uh, I, this is mainly, if I remember right, cybersecurity companies who are sharing information about what they're seeing as they are defending. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So we focus primarily on cybersecurity providers. So those that are providing services to others like um, vendors, um, but also, you know, telecommunication companies, ISPs, MSSPs, and platform providers. That's really our main, uh, our main focus. So I, I would have thought that, that you could do that with companies from Australia and the UK and maybe other parts of Europe, uh, but that uh, uh, if a Chinese security company like uh, Chihu uh, said they wanted to join, it would create some issues for you, wouldn't it? It would. And actually, we have rules that um, allow us to um, screen out companies that we believe uh, would pose an unmanageable security risk. Um, So our member companies are from countries like the UK and Spain and Israel and India, you know, places that are not going to pose the same kind of security risk that, you know, frankly, a a company from China or Russia would, would likely pose. So uh, you've got you're you're in a space where a lot of people have spent really I, I I think this has been a information sharing has been something that we've been talking about since the Clinton administration in some respects uh, and uh, DHS has all of these information sharing uh, uh, advisory councils if I remember right uh, or are they industry sector anyway they are in information sharing units. Uh, uh, and uh, then there are commercial businesses that uh, try to facilitate information sharing. Where does CTA fit in that ecosystem? So we're, you can really think of CTA as like an information sharing and analysis center for the cybersecurity industry. Um, most ISACs um, operate in an industry vertical like retail or financial services or healthcare or in- energy. So in some ways, CTA is the ISAC for the cybersecurity industry. Um, but I think, you know, more broadly, one of the things that we've we've learned, right, you know, Stuart, is that you're right. We've absolutely been talking about uh, information sharing for decades. And I think one of the key things that we've learned is that everybody recognizes that we need to do it and that we ought to do it. But figuring out the how in a way that actually fits with companies' business models and actually makes sense uh, from a you know business perspective as well as from an ecosystem perspective has actually turned out to be really hard. Um, and that's some of what CTA really tries to solve is that sort of underlying that underlying problem. 
So there, there have been a variety of efforts at uh, making the, um, the sharing of information a little more uh, digital friendly. There's the, uh, uh, now a numbering system for CVEs. There's uh, the attack matrix uh, the, from MITRE. Um, uh, there's the, um, uh, the, the whole attack. Uh, spectrum, uh, uh, the kill chain. Um, people often use tickets to kind of try to organize the projects that they're working on, but the tickets are probably full of uh, uh, freeform text, which makes it a little hard to share automatically. Yeah, and I think a lot of the advances, right, that you just named have all been a piece of getting better at doing that information sharing. For example, we also use um, the Structured Threat Intelligence Exchange or STIX uh, format. Oh, yeah, uh, we, sure. use, we use, yeah, we use STIX 2.1 actually to do our sharing within the alliance. It is necessary to have that standard because you're right. Otherwise, everybody's sort of, you know, shoving around uh, these freeform texts or you know Excel spreadsheets or PDFs, and um, you know, getting that kind of standardized language is actually really. Um, you know, really important. And so you couple that with some of those other advances, um, like this, the, you know, the numbering system for vulnerabilities and the attack matrix and kill chains. And, you know, we're finally starting to have a framework where you can exchange a lot of this information in an organized fashion and in a way that you can actually do analysis on it to find trends and uh, identify, um, you know, use data analysis to identify hidden features. So I, uh, I know you've got a product called Magellan or a platform. What is that, uh, uh, and uh, how does it help the information sharing actually happen? So Magellan is the name for our automated sharing platform. So all of our members um, connect into the platform, and it's a way for us to actually um, both bring in and ingest uh, data from our member companies. Uh, but also for our member companies to pull back the data that they want from uh, what everybody else has shared. Um, and so this platform operates, you know, uh, basically in, in near real time. And we're, you know, pushing about 200,000 indicators, more than 200,000 indicators a day through this platform now and, the, and their associated context. Um, so we try to link as much of the intelligence together as possible. Um, which is also another key feature. In other words, don't just, we, we ask our members to not just send us an indicator, you know, like an IP address or a mutex or something and say, yep, this is bad. We ask them to tell us why they think it's bad um, so that you can actually have a better understanding of the context around that indicator. So it does seem to me that if, um, if I were DHS and I had some indicators that I didn't really want to have uh, in the New York Times or uh, uh, BuzzFeed uh, uh, because they're still pretty sensitive and maybe even still are being used uh, for exploitation in ways we can't fully control. Rather than announcing them or even sending them out to the retail uh, ISAC, uh, it would make some sense to, to go to your members who are in a position to quietly add them to a whole bunch of uh, screening tools uh, so that the customers don't even have to see the, uh, the indicator to be protected from it. Yeah, I mean, and actually, I think that's, 
you know, to many degrees, Stuart, I think that that's actually much more of the model that we need to head to in the sense that trying to get every single company and every single industry to be able to deal with technical cyber data is just, that's a losing proposition, right? And in mm -hmm. fact, from even from just, I would make that argument on the basis of, you know, economic comparative advantage, right? Uh, we, we really want instead our, you know, our cybersecurity providers, the experts at it, to be the ones that are actually dealing with, you know, incorporating those kinds of indicators. Um, and certainly, you know, providing a quiet channel for governments to get uh, information out there that can better protect the, the whole ecosystem. That's certainly something that, you know, CTA is always happy to try to do. So my impression is that company countries that have a little more stable um, economic uh, um, uh, establishment, uh, like Australia or the UK, have tended to do that. That is to say, they have found companies that provide cybersecurity that they trust and pulled them into small groups and said, okay, we're going to start giving you preferential access to information because we want you to provide protection to a whole bunch of people out uh, uh, in the economy. Um, I, I don't know if, they, if that's the case. Uh, so let me just ask you, is that something that you're seeing elsewhere? Not to a huge degree. I think many Western governments still um, struggle with this concept of how do you actually deal with the fact that not everybody in the ecosystem uh, is in fact equal uh, when they come to the table. And there's a very deep-seated desire for very good reasons in the U.S. government, right? We actually normally don't want the U.S. government or most governments showing preferential treatment to specific co companies. But in this case, you know, it's actually it's actually true that just not everybody can deal with this kind of information um, effectively. Um, and so I actually think this is one of the big policy frontiers for uh, for a lot of Western governments is how to work with the private sector effectively uh, in a way that upholds our desire to, you know, prevent trusts from forming. So antitrust and for not being anti-competitive. But yet we've got to figure out a way to thread that needle uh, and figure out how to enable the government and private sector to actually work together in, uh, you know, to go after the bad guys. How about your members? I would have thought that, that, that they have a similar problem. They obviously want to get as much information as they can from everybody else. But particularly if they've been compromised or if they found a really cool indicator that they think is differentiating them in the market, they might not be so quick to share that. Do you see some reticence about sharing certain kinds of information? Well, all of our members have reasons why they can't share certain kinds of information. Some of them have contractual uh, relationships um, with, uh, you know, with uh, there are customers that prevent them from sharing certain information. Some of them have, you know, uh, operating countries where the laws prevent some of that sharing. Some of them um, have some of those research issues that you just talked about. So none of our members share everything uh, with us. And okay. that's actually OK. Uh, one of our big lessons has been you don't have to share everything for the sharing to be useful. Um, yeah. Now, that said, um, we also very strongly believe that most of the time, the the technical data, the actual indicator itself, or the 
you know, associated context is not really what differentiates the, the member company. Most of the time, it's what they do with that. It's how they interpret that indicator, right? It's mm-hmm. what does this indicator tell you? What should we be doing with that indicator? That's the analysis that they put on top of that indicator. That's really where the value add comes from. And so for most of our member companies, like the value is not in the raw data itself. It's actually in what they do with the data. Um, and so therefore, it enables them to actually agree to share that data because everybody's better off and everybody's in fact more competitive if you're sharing more of that underlying raw data and then the competition occurs on what you do with it. So let me ask you a question that will involve a a Henry Kissinger story. Uh, uh, (laughs) And the Kissinger story, because uh, because because he really is uh, he's he is to uh, uh, wisdom in foreign affairs what uh, Will Rogers is to humor uh, uh, everywhere. Uh, he is reputed to have said to somebody uh, who was going into government, uh, um, "You should go into government. You know an awful lot about these topics, and you're going to go into government, and you're basically going to spend everything you know." And once you're done spending it and it's gone, so should you be. Uh, and I thought he, he grasped something about government service, which is that nobody tells you anything, something in the government without a reason. There's always an agenda behind the fact. Uh, and, uh, and so you do learn things, but you learn them in an environment that is uh, thoroughly rife with uh, self-interest. Uh, and so you can't fully trust what you learn. Whereas when you go out in the, in the world afterwards, it, nobody has enough of an incentive to lie to you. So you learn a lot that uh, it turns out to be pretty true. Um, so you've now been out for four years. I, what would you say you had learned that you wished you knew while you were in government? Well, I think a couple of things, certainly one of which is that um, how hard it is to actually do this information sharing, right? That, that it takes a lot. It's easy to talk about. I mean, one of the reasons why we've talked about it for so long is it turns out to be easy to talk about and hard to do, you know, what we've been talking about. Um, but I think I didn't quite appreciate just exactly how hard it is for some of these companies to invest the resources and actually make sharing consistent, high quality, sustained over a period of time. Like that, that's a big investment and it's hard to measure that the return on that invest, investment. So it's hard to sustain that. Um, you know, I think the, you know, I think another thing I will say though, uh, that I've learned is that the government certainly has no monopoly on uh, bureaucracy or lawyers. Um, and that many companies, <laughs> you know, many companies are afflicted uh, with that same uh, setup. Uh, and the larger they are, the more they tend to start to resemble uh, government agencies. Um, and so uh, I think that's been that has certainly been one one key lesson for uh, for me. Um, and then, you know, here's where I here's where I step in to say that not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> you know, it's I, I, there's a reason why it exists. But and I think that in many cases it, it serves a purpose, but it just also uh, I think I would have less uh, patience for the constant uh, criticism of government for its you know bureaucracy and lawyers uh, compared to the private sector. It has other issues, but, you know, that is not a unique to the to the government. You know, I think the last thing that is, you know, one of the key things that one of our, our members, you know, said um, is something that I would very much keep in mind uh, and urge my government colleagues to keep in mind is that, you know, when you're 
wanting to establish all these different relationships when X agency says, you know, I want to have a relationship with the private sector and FBI says, I want to have a relationship with the private sector, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, interacting with the government is not a revenue generating activity um, for these companies. And there's only going to be so much capacity for performing partner, for forming partnerships and working with the government in a collaborative fashion. The government really needs to think through exactly how many different ways it wants to interact with the private sector. Yeah, I, that's true. Although I, I will say I, I give this advice routinely to companies that are in that position. I say they're not going to do it on their own. But if you say, put them in the room or talk to them individually, I say, I'm only going to talk to you, one of you. And then I want to know that the rest of you are getting the information. They will, they will self-organize because they don't want to lose you. Uh, so it, 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 companies can protect themselves from that if they want to. Yeah. But I definitely think that there's a tendency, you know, in the different agencies to want to all have their own direct link to companies. And, you know, and so my, my advice on the other side would be like, you know, start that some of that self-organization before you're forced to do so at gunpoint effectively. So. Yeah, it's it, it's true. And I, I vividly remember a phone call uh, when I was going to New York and I said, well, I'll, I'll meet with a few CISOs uh, uh, with the banks and find out what they think is happening. I was at DHS at the time and I got this blistering phone call from some deputy assistant secretary at Treasury saying, what are you doing talking to my banks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, OK, so last question. Um the there's now you've been out four years uh, and um, uh, you've learned a lot. Uh, you've re replenished the store of information that you could spend in government. Uh, is it possible that you will go back? Uh, are you interested in doing it? And what kinds of things are the kind of challenge you'd be interested in? Well, there's always a, a possibility. Um, you know, certainly it depends on kind of what positions might uh, be you know, open and what the administration wants, uh, but it's certainly something I'm considering. I mean, I think the, uh, you know, I, for me, Stuart, I think the real question is, you know, are there the kinds of initiatives where we can really be at the cutting edge of working on these issues like operational collaboration? Like how does the government and the private sector not just share information, but coordinate actions against the bad guys? Um, how do we then extend that internationally and really build some of the coalitions that we need to build internationally? Um, what, you know, how do we actually move the needle um, in terms of better cybersecurity across the entire ecosystem within the United States, right? Those are the kinds of questions that, that interest me um, and the kinds yeah. of policy issues that I think are, would be, you know, that deserve a lot of time and attention um, you know, from the federal government. Well, good. Yeah, the, the, the lucky thing is the president, the president Trump has emptied every possible job you would want that would do, <laughs> do those things. So <laughs> you've got, you got a, a free range set of opportunities. I, I said I was, that was going to be the last question, but I thought of one more, uh, which is, um, it is my observation that, um, when we have two governments, one of them's Republican, one of them's Democrat at, at any one time, one government's out and the other government's in. But the people 
in those parties think of themselves as essentially part of the government, but on hiatus. Uh, and they come back after usually eight years, sometimes 12, sometimes four. Uh, and they tend to pick up where they started uh, or they stopped. So they, they just say, okay, uh, what was on my desk uh, when I left here four or eight years ago? And how could these bozos not have finished that job? Um, and, in so doing, they miss things that happened while they were gone, which they watched and said, oh, that's because the other team has no idea how to do this and they're just screwing up. When in fact, it turns out that events were riding uh, uh, the administration rather than the uh, administration riding events. Uh, and so there's a tendency to dismiss all the things that the, 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 the last team did and just to want to go back to what you were doing when you left. So you've had a chance to watch things play out over the last four years. Um, it, from a pretty close uh, close up seat in cybersecurity, what are the things that you would tell the new guys? Hey, don't ignore what the Trump administration did here or here because either it was a good idea or it was something they had to do, and you're going to have to do too. Yeah, so I definitely think that you know, for example, um, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at uh, DHS has really matured into a very good agency on, uh, under Chris Krebs. And I would say definitely build on that success. Um, you are seeing the FBI make a shift from um, almost an, you know, a, this intense focus on arrest and prosecution is the only way we can deal with cyber criminals and sort of recognizing that we're never gonna get our hands on um, a lot of those cyber criminals. And so what other tools do we have to impose costs on those uh, those cyber criminals. Um, you know, similarly, I think, you know, you've seen um, some real efforts to try to figure out how to actually use cyber tools in the offensive side more effectively. And I would say, you know, take all of those and, you know, keep working on them. Because I completely agree, Stuart. It, it, um, you know, I spent many, many years at OMB, like working back and forth between different administrations, right? And, um, it, it's it's silly it's to kind of embarrassing to watch yeah, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's you know, and it, it's it's silly to not recognize the. And I'm no friend of this administration, um, you know, at all in terms of the overall policies in many areas. But I, it's it's silly to ignore the things that have gone right and should definitely be building on those to you know further improve them. Because goodness knows we got plenty of adversaries out there who want to take advantage of us. Okay. Well, thank you. That's Michael Daniel. He's the president and CEO of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Uh, I, and I want to thank as well uh, our News Roundup participants, Maury Shank, Jamil Jaffer, Nate Jones. Uh, uh, thanks to Ken Weissman of Weissman Sound Design for our uh, new intro music. This has been episode 340 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. I want to take one second to draw attention to the fact that the Cyber Law uh, Podcast finished in first place in the podcast category uh, for social media law firm uh, achievement uh, in uh, in podcasting. So uh, we beat the other lawyers, uh, at least for podcasting. Uh, um, you have to take account of the um, the competition guys if you're saying, well, geez, you're not that good. Uh, and uh, uh, we're pleased to uh, uh, have 
good to be social uh, acknowledge our achievement there uh, please do send us suggestions uh, um, Michael is on the podcast because we got a suggestion uh, uh, really about a week ago from somebody who said you ought to interview Michael and uh, I said what a great idea uh, and we're sending out a highly coveted cyber law podcast mug to the uh, person who suggested him uh, please follow me on Twitter and uh, you can you can vote for the stories you'd like to see uh, either on Twitter or LinkedIn by reposting them or liking them just to give me a feel for what people really want to hear for, uh, hear about uh, uh, so I'm at Stuart Baker on Twitter and you can find me on LinkedIn pretty easily as well uh, please rate the show that's that's the only thing we ask we don't ask for money we don't play commercials we just ask for a review please give us a review and then please join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology security privacy and government